Good morning, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of EV Brief, your weekly news brief on electric vehicles, sustainable transport, and renewable energy from Australia and around the world. I'm your host, Jonathan McFeet, and on this week's show, news from Fiat Chrysler and European regulators look set to approve the $38 billion merger with Group PSA, parent company of Peugeot Citroën, and we look at what that might mean for the future of the company's EV platforms. Electric truck startup Arrival is going small, investing in a microfactory in the US state of South Carolina. In renewables news, Tesla has launched their own UK electricity plan with Octopus Energy. And GE starts testing a massive 13-megawatt offshore wind turbine. These stories and more on today's episode. Starting off with the $38 billion merger between FCA Group and PSA, the European regulator looks set to approve the deal to form the Stellantis Group, which will encompass brands ranging from Fiat, Ferrari, Jeep, Dodge, to Citroën, Peugeot, DS and Vauxhall. The merger is planned to be on a 50-50 all-stock basis and would create the world's fourth-largest automotive conglomerate behind Volkswagen, Toyota and Nissan Renault. With a sharp decline in automotive sales across the board this year, this merger couldn't come at a better time, with shared operations and an increase to economies of scale predicted to bring Stellantis $6 billion US a year in savings, despite the promise to not close any facilities or lay off any workers. PSA and FCA generated a combined US $216 billion in revenue in 2019 and sold a combined 7.9 million vehicles. It's expected the deal will be completed by early 2021, before the February 2 deadline. So what does this mean for the group's electric vehicles? Well, Group PSA is working on a new electric vehicle modular platform, likely to go into production in 2023, and Fiat's new 500e is already based on PSA's common modular platform. The development of the new platform architecture and drivetrains is going to require a huge amount of capex from the Stellantis Group over the next three to five years, and CNET reports that the Canadian Auto Union has this week ratified a three-year labour agreement with FCA. The Windsor, Ontario plant currently builds the most exciting Chrysler Pacifica and Voyager minivans, but it will look to begin production of vehicles based on a new, quote, multi-energy vehicle architecture. The union has said this could create up to 2,000 jobs, and it's likely that the aforementioned PSA EV platforms will form the basis for Fiat's uh, new EV architecture. Now, if that's a little confusing, basically the 50-50 merger will help to bring the technology of the two groups together and reduce cost. And as CNET says, quote, The PSA platforms and vehicles have already been designed, so making the adjustments for North American safety regulations is less expensive than developing a whole new vehicle from scratch. UK EV truck startup Arrival looks to South Carolina to build a microfactory capable of producing 1,000 electric buses a year, according to Forbes. Hoping to employ 240 workers, it's estimated the startup cost to be around 240 million US dollars. Arrival plans to make electric buses and eventually delivery vans that are cost comparable to internal combustion engine vehicles. Arrival's whole business model is based on cellular vehicle construction. Smaller microfactories source components locally and produce vehicles specifically for the region. Costs are further reduced by eliminating the traditional automotive production line concept. Each microfactory can be deployed within six months and can fit into a pre-existing building. The modular plug-and-play components allow fast assembly and are designed to be used across Arrival's product range. This is certainly an interesting approach as costs become an important factor in bringing viable electric delivery vans to market. 
Arrival will likely be competing head-on with Amazon and Rivian's new van, but Arrival UK already has an order from UPS for 10,000 vans worth an estimated £340 million. On the back of news that China will set zero emissions targets, Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Tsuga has announced that Japan will commit to zero emissions by 2050 to fall in line with the EU's target. It's expected that Japan's automotive manufacturing, steel and power generation industries will have to take strict measures to reduce emissions, and Japan is expected to announce revisions to its coal-fired power program in early 2021, after facing strong international criticism for being the only G7 nation to continue building coal power plants. Now, South Korean President Moon Jae-in has formally committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050 as part of a major election promise. President Moon, in a speech to Parliament, noted, By replacing coal power generation with renewable energy, we will create new markets and industries and create jobs. Underlying this transition will be a $37 billion deal of green infrastructure, clean energy and electric vehicle policy aimed at accelerating the transition to clean energy by 2025. South Korea aims to have 1.2 million electric vehicles and 200,000 hydrogen-powered vehicles on the road by that date. Of course, every good news story must be balanced with some good old-fashioned head-in-the-sand antics from Australia, and the Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne was asked by her shadow cabinet counterpart Penny Wong last week whether, quote, she welcomed our neighbour's adoption of net zero as a member of the community of nations. The Foreign Minister acknowledged the development from Japan, South Korea and China, but refused to welcome the development, despite Australia's status as a signatory to the Paris Agreement. She stated, quote, it is not for Australia to welcome or not welcome a promise by a strategic partner to hit net zero emissions by mid-century. They are matters for those countries. The Foreign Minister would also not be drawn on whether Australia would be setting a net zero emissions target, as most other Paris signatories have already done. Staying on message may serve the Minister and this government for now, but Australia is increasingly looking like a regional and global pariah for its inaction on protecting the environment and its neighbours and mitigating global warming. As Japan, Korea and China make up some of Australia's largest trading partners, it will pay for Australia to welcome and embrace the region's green shift, if only for the sake of our economic prosperity. New Zealand's government has made the switch from chauffeured diesel BMW 730s to zero-emission Audi e-tron 55 Quattros for the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ministers. Now, it's understood that two Audi e-trons will be based in the capital Wellington, primarily to shuttle ministers between Wellington Airport and New Zealand Parliament's executive wing, colloquially known as the Beehive. A third e-tron will be based in Prime Minister Ardern's hometown of uh, Auckland, and we believe will have a child seat fitted for family duties. Prime Minister Ardern and her government are strong supporters of zero emissions vehicles. She currently drives a Hyundai Ioniq, and New Zealand not only has a net zero emissions by 2050 target, but they aim to have a zero emissions government light vehicle fleet by 2026. Over to Singapore, where land is at a premium. With a population of close to 6 million and a land area of 725 square kilometres, creative thinking is required for large-scale transport and energy projects. The Maritime Executive writes that Singapore's Energy Market Authority and Keppel Offshore and Marine plan to install a floating energy storage system with 7.5 megawatt hours of lithium-ion batteries on Keppel Offshore and Marine's floating living lab. The Energy Market Authority's chief executive, Niam Shi Chun, said, quote, Energy storage and smart energy management systems support the deployment of more renewable energy in Singapore. This project will pave the way to overcome our land constraints and set the blueprint for similar deployments in the future. 
The floating lab batteries will be stacked vertically, a first for Singapore, reducing the footprint by an estimated 40%. A seawater liquid cooling setup will also be implemented to reduce the battery's operating temperature and improve performance in the humid climate of Singapore. Now, due for completion in 2023, the 7.5 MWh capacity should be enough to supply power to 600 four-room HDB units, which are around 90 square metres or 970 square feet. Staying with Tesla for a minute, but jumping over to the UK and the company has launched its own electricity plan in conjunction with Octopus Energy. The deal promises a tariff that is 75% cheaper than other market options, but the caveat is that you must already have rooftop solar and a Tesla Powerwall 2 battery. Now, if you qualify, the market rate for electricity imported and exported from your household is 11 pence per kilowatt hour. If you also own a Tesla vehicle, the rate is lowered to 8 pence per kilowatt hour. The unit rate of electricity in the UK is around 20 to 24 pence per kilowatt hour at the moment, and that's before you factor in the obligatory supply charges, which aren't present in this deal from Tesla. One key detail that may either be a deal breaker or a deal maker for you, depending on your view, is that you must commit to being part of a virtual power plant, i.e. a network of interconnected behind-the-meter systems. Tesla will control all the power walls on Octopus's behalf to manage how and when customers use their solar systems or stored energy. Octopus states that, quote, This helps reduce the wholesale market cost of the electricity you consume, giving you the best rates available as well as supporting the grid during peak periods. This import and export management is what allows us to be able to give you the most competitive import and export rates on the market. Octopus guarantees that any electricity sourced from the grid via the package is guaranteed to be 100% renewable. This system will be similar to South Australia's Tesla virtual power plant, which is currently at 10 megawatts and looking to expand to 50,000 customers by 2022, thanks in part to the state government's home battery incentive scheme. And lastly today, GE, or General Electric, has begun testing of a gargantuan 13-megawatt offshore wind turbine, which stands 248 metres tall and features blades that are 107 metres long. It offers double the generation capacity of any offshore turbine currently installed around the world. GE states that the prototype is undergoing testing and is set for certification shortly after three years. GE expects that the Dogger Bank wind farm in the UK will be the first deployment, with 190 units on order and scheduled to be installed from 2023. Now it's expected that the larger size and increased performance will achieve high utilisation factors, with the company's previous prototype 12 megawatt version, which is in Rotterdam I believe, achieving a a capacity factor in excess of 60%. A 100% capacity factor would mean that a turbine is achieving 100% output all day, every day. Now this is extremely exciting technology and combined with energy storage, it is the future of clean energy generation. Amazingly, GE states one rotation of the 107-metre blade produces enough electricity to power one UK house for more than two days. And that's it for episode 27 of EV Brief. I hope you enjoyed today's show. There was a lot of news on renewables and storage today, but I think as we accelerate towards a clean energy future, it's really important to be aware of what's going on in that space. After all, clean energy will ultimately power the EVs we love to drive. Now make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favourite platform and check out evbrief.com for the latest episode as well as news and video content. Thanks so much for listening to EV Brief this week. Stay safe. Please make sure you get out to vote if you're in the US and see you next time.